Please remain standing and take out your copy of God's Word and open to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read all the way from verse 1 through verse 18. Uh, Mark Jones is going to be preaching uh, just through verses 5 through 11, but we're going to read all the way from verse 1 through verse 18. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any, aff- any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of light, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to take this time to express my uh, deep appreciation for how warmly my, my family, well, two of them have been received, three of us, two kids, uh, I don't think anyone else snuck in, and uh, you guys have, have really been uh, really kind to us, and I appreciate that. I don't usually go on trips to the United States to speak. I tend to go overseas. I feel like the U.S. is spoiled for good teachers. You've got like 200 seminaries. Uh, some countries don't even have any. Uh, so you have a lot of talent down in the United States, a lot of gifted um, theologians and so on. So. Uh, coming here is uh, unique for me, and I, I can say I, I don't regret it at all. It's been a wonderful trip, so uh, thank you for the invite and for uh, your kindness. It's nice to see just a normal church, a uh, regular group of people who love the Lord, uh, and the longer I am in the ministry, the more I'm so thankful for local churches that just do the Lord's business. So uh, let's open with a pr- word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for what we are about to uh, hear concerning Christ and everything that we hear that is true. May we store it up in our heart, everything that uh, does not lead to Christ, anything that would not be true, please let us cast it away. And we ask that as we hear 
uh, Christ preached, we will be more and more like him and less and less like our natural selves. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. To me, the Bible has so many different themes, and it's easy to say, well, the central theme of the Bible is this, that, or the other. But in terms of the Christian life and the themes that I've been able to discern myself by just reading it, one has particularly struck me as central, and I think this may be something that will uh, become obvious as you hear it, and maybe if you haven't heard it before, you'll say, oh, how did I miss that? Um, it's what uh, I've called the high-low-high movement. And the high-low-high movement is, is something that you see clearly in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, where you have uh, Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited or taken advantage of, but made himself nothing. And that is where you see the low movement begin, and it speaks about his death, even death on a cross, and you see humiliation. So there's an exaltation, humiliation, and then he is given the name that is above every name, exaltation. So you have high, low, high. But actually, what you find is that we see these types of movements elsewhere in the Scriptures. For example, Job was someone who went through this high low, high movement. Job is an extended discourse in a manner of speaking upon Philippians 2, 5 to 11 in an analogous way concerning a, a sinner nonetheless, but still someone who had great gifts and wealth and honor and godliness, but who had to sink very low indeed before God raised him up again. You could look at the life of Moses. He is born where? He is born in the court of Pharaoh. He is the prince of Egypt, so to speak. He is high, but rather chooses to be mistreated with the people of God because he was seeking the reward, and he is then the one that God uses to lead the people out of Egypt. He goes through his own high, low, high movement. You see the same thing with David. You see how David is the one who is going to be made king. He has so much honor and glory, but he goes through his own humiliation, which we've looked at already this weekend in Psalm 51 and his sins. Uh, but nonetheless, God still exalts him. He is a man after his own heart. He writes psalms and so on and so forth. Joseph is another example. Joseph is the one who is told through dreams that his family will bow down to him, but that doesn't happen immediately. He is told he will have this honor, but he has to sink, as it were, into a pit. And he goes through many trials and tribulations before he is then exalted again, and that is God's way. Interestingly, I think if you look at the uh, servant song in Isaiah chapter 53, you can miss this, because people think of Isaiah 53 as Christ being crushed, his humiliation, but actually it begins at the end of chapter 52, and you look at the last two verses of chapter 52, which is the fourth servant song of the four servant songs, and it begins with his exaltation. 53 then moves into his humiliation before ending again with his exaltation. So even before Philippians 2, 5 to 11, you have high exaltation, low humiliation, high exaltation. And would you expect to see this in the New Testament? Not just concerning Christ, but others. 
The answer is yes. In fact, if you look just over at Philippians chapter 3, you don't need to do that now, but maybe later on you can look at the life of the Apostle Paul. He has his own sort of exaltation. He is of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's a Pharisee, he's touching the law blameless, he has all these attainments that he had, his own form of exaltation, but then he comes to know Christ and he considers all things as rubbish. He has his low movement for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, but then he speaks towards the end of Philippians 3 as what? That by any means he may attain to the resurrection. So if David, if Job, if Joseph, if anyone, Jacob, if any of these people have their own high-low high movement, you might wish to pay attention to the fact that this could be a theme even in your own life, just as it is in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now his humiliation was the greatest humiliation because nobody has ever descended from such a high place. His is an infinite humiliation. And the incarnation is not necessarily a humiliation, but the context in which he became the incarnate Son of God was a humiliation. There is no room in the inn for the child that is miraculously born. There is not the host of all of Israel come to watch and bow down and all of the people of God who've been waiting for the Messiah, waiting to welcome Him as the true King of kings, Lord of lords. In fact, there are the Magi only who are not even from the people of God. You have Jesus having to escape to all places, Egypt, Israel's sworn enemies, and then you have righteous Nathaniel saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I've been to Nazareth and I agree with Nathaniel. It's nothing to write home about. You, you, you get a warm, tingly feeling because Jesus once lived there, but that's about it. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The point is, in Jesus' early life, he did not have one of those upbringings with a silver spoon. He did not come from great dignity, great honor, great power. He was one who had to be a student, one who had to go to the synagogue each Saturday on the Sabbath, and he had to listen to the Word of God by others perhaps teaching him when he knew far more than they could ever dream to know even as a young man. Imagine what that would be like. When you are sitting there and you are thinking in your mind and you know in your mind, I know far more than the person speaking. That may even be happening right now, I don't know. But <laughs> the point is, our Lord was hid away and He had to wait patiently for His moment. Now, in adulthood, not only does He enter the world in poverty, but He lives basically in poverty and dies in poverty. And Bernard of Clairvaux said, By how much the viler he was made for me, by so much dearer he shall be to me. Jesus said on one occasion, Birds of the air have nests, and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You should resist the tendency to move on quickly from that thought. The eternal Son of God who owns the universe and far beyond, who has the right to everything, was able to say at one point in his life, I have nowhere to lay my 
head. And so we ask ourselves this question, is there any condition in this world that is too low for any of us here? When the Son of God can say that, amazing how we can complain. When Jesus had to pay a tax for himself and Peter, he doesn't say, and I've had a few friends like this and in church, and uh, I remember one time one of my elders, a urologist, surgeon, makes lots of money, just pulls up his wallet. There's always lots of cash in there, and that's where we don't even use cash anymore, but you know, you still, if you've got lots of money, you need to have that wad of cash. It's part of the aura, right? Jesus doesn't pull out, you know, as it were, a wad of cash and say, oh, what would you like? How shall we pay the tax? He has to perform a miracle in order to pay a tax. Because of the way in which he lived his life. When his family were seeing his ministry begin, they thought that he was actually out of his mind. Which is quite interesting when you think about it, because the only person I think we could say who has ever truly been in their right mind in the whole world has been our Lord Jesus. But if he's only the one in his right mind, I guess he would seem out of his mind to everyone else who is actually out of their mind. And so his family thought he was out of his mind. His own brothers did not even believe in him and sometimes taunted him to manifest his messianic ministry and show all of the signs and wonders and prove to the world. And at times Jesus simply would not do that. Judas betrays him with a kiss and then Jesus says that he existed before Abraham and the Jews did what? They attempted to stone the rock of ages. On one occasion, Jesus goes over to Simon the Pharisee's house for dinner, and he does not receive the expected hospitality that one would receive. And then the woman comes in, and she, she with her tears and her hair and the ointment, she, she washes his feet, and he points to her and says, you know, you see what this woman has done? I came, you gave me no kiss. You gave me no water for my feet. You did not give me the expected hospitality one would receive. Jesus was humiliated left, right, and center. Now, as it continues, it's interesting to me that they called him a deceiver and one who leads people astray. That was in John chapter 7, verse 12. Then he performs miracles which were acts of mercy upon the needy, and they were basically interpreted as being done by a satanic power. He casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of Satan. The Jewish people preferred to have a murderer let loose upon their community, knowing they had children and wives and so on, knowing that this guy would be likely going to do the same things he had once done, and yet they preferred a murderer rather than to have anything more to do with the Prince of Peace. This was the humiliation he underwent. At his trial, it should have been a vindication of his innocence, but it was the opposite. The Sanhedrin was not supposed to meet at night on the day of his trial, but they did. The death penalty could not actually be declared on the day of a trial, and yet it was. Annas and Caiaphas should have disqualified themselves because of their prejudice, which they did not. False evidence and false witnesses were used. Jesus was not, in fact, guilty of blasphemy as they charged him with. He was exposed to blows during the trial, which was also illegal by Jewish law. And the Sanhedrin could not meet on the eve of the Sabbath to discuss a capital case. 
You see, all of these rules that the Jewish people came up with, all of these rules that they supposedly loved, they were willing to throw all of these laws out of the window in order to kill the Lord of glory, in order to kill the one who is chief among 10,000, in order to kill the one who is the exact representation of God whom they claimed to serve. And then to make matters worse, his disciples... And indeed, one of his closest friends, Peter, denied him publicly. Perhaps one of the greatest indignities Christ ever faced was the fact that the person he had invested so much in, the person he had loved so much, the one who he had taken to the Mount of Transfiguration, the one who had made so many great boasts, if all men deny you, I will never deny you, even if I have to die with you. And yet, a servant girl is able to draw out of Peter a denial of, of the one who should never have been denied. In Psalm 69, we have uh, a background to his humiliation on the cross. And it's interesting because part of that psalm is quoted in John's Gospel. But if you look at the context of Psalm 69 in verse 20 to 21, you actually get a glimpse into the emotional state of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's something that I rarely hear spoken of. But in Psalm 69, verse 20, we read, Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. See, John alludes to these words in his own description of Christ's sufferings in John chapter 19, I think verse 28 and 29. But you see in the context of Psalm 69 there, he speaks about the fact that all of these sufferings, all of the ridicules, all of the humiliation, he was not unaffected by it. He was too holy and too pure to not be affected by it. In fact, I think that because he was so sinless and pure, seeing such insults, seeing such ridicule, seeing such humiliation would have affected him far greater than it could ever affect one of us. Because he sees the evil for what it really was. Psalm 22, which specifically describes Christ's crucifixion, has such penetrating insight into his mental state during his sufferings at Golgotha. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Many scholars believe, while Psalm 22 is quoted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that Christ may have quoted large sections or all of Psalm 22 when he was on the cross. And we just get a snippet of that. But in Psalm 22, we read, He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, for He delights in Him. And remember, those words were mockery towards Jesus Christ by the onlookers. In fact, His threefold office of prophet, priest, and king was ridiculed and blasphemed at the cross. Remember His role as a prophet? Here we're told that they spit in His face and struck Him. And some slapped him. Can you imagine these people at the day of judgment? The ones who spit in his face and struck him and slapped him, unless they repented what it will be like for them? And what do they say? Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And they will get their answer one day. They mocked him as a prophet. 
of his role as a king. Notice we hear the scornful jeering. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. They're ridiculing him as the one who proclaimed to be the Son of God, which is a title for the King of Israel. And they are saying, if he's really the King of Israel, let him come down now and we will believe him. But it was precisely because he was the true King of Israel that he could not come down. His role as a priest, you hear the cynicism and the ridicule in the words that were offered to him. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. That's one of the most beautiful declarations of theology uttered anywhere in God's Word by wicked men. Remember Caiaphas, it would be better that one man should die than that the whole nation should perish. He has no idea what he's saying, but that's actually true when it comes to the gospel. And here, he saved others, he cannot save himself. That's absolutely true. He did save others because he did not save himself himself. The robbers who were crucified with him both reviled him. You have to remember that even though one was later converted, they both began, according to Matthew, by reviling him at the cross. And the very fact that he was on a cross was a sign that he was under God's curse. Cursed is anyone who is hanged upon a tree. You see, Christ's life was a life of humiliation, but it's also a life of exaltation. And in fact, we see a beautiful contrast between Golgotha and the Mount of Transfiguration. And perhaps you've read of this, perhaps you know all of these details, but I think it's a contrast worth highlighting because it really brings out the nature of the true Christian life. It is one of suffering, but it will also be one of glory. If you look at the fact that Jesus is revealed in glory on Mount Hermon, if that was the Mount of Transfiguration, there's still a bit of debate. But the fact is he's on a mount and he's revealed in glory, but he is crucified in shame upon the hill at Golgotha. At the Mount of Transfiguration, remember his clothing majestically shines white as light. But what happens at Golgotha? The Roman soldiers shamelessly divided his bloodied garments. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses representing the law and Elijah the prophets gloriously stood beside Jesus Christ and spoke with him, while on the cross the two criminals shamefully hung beside him and reviled him. At one place, Moses and Elijah, at another place he is being reviled. On the Mount of Transfiguration, a bright cloud overshadowed those present, while on the hill it was darkness reminiscent of the plague in Egypt that covered the land. On the Mount of Transfiguration, what does God publicly declare? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. But at Golgotha we hear no words from the Father, but only the Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the Mount of Transfiguration, what does Peter say? Lord, it is good that we are here. Peter was with him. Peter wanted the glory. Peter loved the glory. But where is Peter at Golgotha? Peter is saying, it is good that I am not there. And so as Christ comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he immediately speaks again of his sufferings because as much 
as the glory would one day be his, he knew that in order to achieve that glory promised to him, which he prayed in his prayer, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son with the glory with which I had with you before the creation of the world. He knew it had to be through suffering. Now, just by way of some points of application for us, what does this teach us? It teaches us that in the Christian life, you can't escape that valley. Wherever you start from, and maybe you were converted later in life, in all of your pride, in all of your unbelief, you will necessarily follow in the footsteps of the pioneer of your salvation. You will go through those valleys. And in that valley, if you were to stretch that valley out, you're going to have your high-low highs in your life. There are going to be times where things do go well. There's going to be times where everything seems to be going swimmingly. But then there's going to be times where you do hit that humiliation. But God is the one who not only brings us into that humiliation, He is also the one that brings us out of that humiliation. God will never ever let a child of God remain in the pit. That's what you see with Job. That's what you see with Joseph. And that's what you see preeminently with His own Son, Jesus Christ. And that is what we can be assured of. He will never allow us to remain in the pit. The movement that God has established all throughout Scripture always ends one way or another in glory. It always ends that way. There is only one way for the Christian in this life, and it is usually down but there is only one way for the Christian in the life to come, and that will inevitably be up. There is also one last thing, because Philippians 2 finishes on this wondrous confession. And every now and then, I have to just touch my knee. And as I touch my knee, I have to remember that this knee that God has given me is going to be a knee that one day will bow down. And then I touch my tongue and I have to remember that this tongue is going to be a tongue that one day will confess. And as this knee bows down and this tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, I have to remember that that confession on the final day for everyone sitting here and for myself included cannot be a confession that only happens that day. It has to be a confession that happens every day. And to the degree that we bow our knee in this life and to the degree that we confess with our tongue in this life that He is Lord will be the degree to which we can look forward to that day when He will return and we will bow down and we will praise Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And that will be our exaltation that we get to say those words to our glory whereas some will be able to say those words only to their shame. Do you want to be the person who can say, as you read Philippians 2, 5 to 11, Christ did this for me? Or do you want to be the person who looks at that with cold indifference and rejects such love? Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that whatever valleys we go through in this life, whether a few or whether so many, you will bring us up. You will deliver us from the pit and you will make good on your promises because your promises are to us yes and amen through Jesus Christ who is now seated at the right hand of the Father in glory and his glory will be our glory which we patiently wait for. Amen.